Genesis chapter 31, we're going to dive right into the text. Full disclosure, right from the beginning, we're going to cover two chapters this morning. A lot of these two chapters are narrative-driven. Uh, no point in getting into the weeds. Uh, everything in these two chapters really builds to a crescendo. And that crescendo we find with an interesting story at the end of chapter 32. So we're going to be moving at quite a clip through 31 and 32, but we're going to dive deep into the end of this narrative, which is really the point of the text anyway. Verse 1 of chapter 31, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban. And indeed, it was not favorable towards him as it was before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Jacob. We looked at this last Sunday, but he's been stirred to leave to leave Laban, to head back to the promised land. And yet Laban presents him, his father-in-law, a deal kind of too good to be true. Kind of a name your own price, build your own wealth before you leave proposition. That said, now that Jacob has indeed prospered, exceedingly prospered, and the same deal hasn't proved to be mutually beneficial to his employer, contention has resulted between Laban, Laban's sons, and Jacob. Not only are Laban's sons tweaked out by the situation, but we read, quote, the countenance of Laban was no longer favorable towards Jacob. Now understand what's happening here. Because Jacob had resisted God's initial stirring to depart from Laban when Joseph had been born. He had been given this deal too good to ignore. The Lord allowed Jacob's circumstances to sour so that now he would have no choice but to leave. Now, don't miss that. And I don't want to drive that point into the ground, but, but there's something significant. There's a nugget there. Often we feel the Lord stirring for a move a new job, to finally ask our girlfriend to marry us, fill in the blank. And sometimes we get that stirring from the Lord. We know it's the Lord, but there's just something out there holding us back from it. And we resist. At some point, understand it's a promise. God will allow your circumstances. I stirred and you didn't move. You didn't obey. So now I'm going to allow everything to sour so that you'll be forced to finally obey me. God wants to lead you into greener pastures, into greater things. He'll do that through a simple stirring. If you resist that, well, he'll use circumstances. Once again, I find it fascinating that we read, then the Lord said to Jacob. Do you notice that? Here we find Jacob in a dicey situation. Laban and his sons are starting to be suspicious that maybe he's swindling them out of their wealth, money, inheritance are all on the line. Things in this dynamic between Jacob and Laban's family could escalate quickly. However, in facing such a situation, what do we not see Jacob doing? We don't see Jacob praying. We don't see Jacob crying out to God. We don't even see Jacob, right, one of the the patriarchs of our faith, even asking the Lord for general direction. What grace, isn't it? That though Jacob wasn't inquiring, wasn't asking, wasn't seeking, wasn't on his knees, 
Still the Lord came to him and spoke clearly. That's grace, man. In his moment of need, God spoke anyway. Well, verse 4, Jacob. He sent and he called Rachel and Leah, these are his wives, to the field, to the flock, and he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable towards me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. And you know that with all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has deceived me, has changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. If Laban said, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. And this references the previous chapter. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and he's given it to me. And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived, no matter what we did, that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. So he says, I had a dream. That's why I did what I did. And the angel of God spoke to me and said, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow. Now arise. It's a command here. Get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So this is Jacob saying to his wives, Rachel and Leah, not just the reality of the ground, the situation, the dynamic with Laban, but also he fills them in on this vision, this dream that he's received from the God of Bethel, where he had initially laid his head and received a dream, this revelation of God, Jacob's ladder. You can reference back to that. So he's recounting the story to his wife. So Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there still any portion of inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. So the ladies are like, if this is what the Lord's laying on your heart, we're right there with you, Jacob. Let's do it. So verse 17, Jacob arose and set his sons and wives on camels. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions, which he had gained, his acquired livestock, which he had gave him, Pada Haram, to go to his father Isaac in the lane of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river, headed towards the mountains of Gilead. So here we have Jacob bringing the women into the loop. It's time for us to bounce. This is not a good dynamic with Laban. Let's not even let Laban know. And so they decide we're going to leave because Jacob fears some conflict here. And so they, they go. Now we're given a little detail that will play itself out in the chapter that as they're leaving, Rachel goes into her father's tents and steals one of his idols. Now, on a side note, if you're a god, can be stolen. Not a really good god. Verse 22. And Laban was told now the third day that Jacob had, led, had fled. So Laban took his brethren with him and pursued Jacob for seven days' journey. 
and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Verse 25, So Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains. And Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban comes and he says to Jacob, What have you done? that you have stolen away unknown to me, that you left without telling me, and carried away my daughters like captives with the sword. That didn't exactly happen. Why did you flee away secretly, steal away from me, not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and with songs, tremble and harp. He's like, man, we would have had a party. Instead, you didn't even tell me. Now that wouldn't have happened. And you... Laban continues, did not allow me to kiss my sons, specifically his grandsons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in doing so. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone and you have greatly longed for your father's house But, and this is the interesting question, this is what Laban kind of gets hung up on. Why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, so he's going to answer kind of two questions. Why did you go without telling me? I would have loved to have said goodbye. Secondly, I, I understand you're going back to your father, going back to the land of promise. I get it all. But why then steal my gods? Like, what's the point of that? Is that, is that just pouring salt in the wound? You, you, you took my wealth? Like, what's going on with that? So two questions. So Jacob answers, and he says to Laban, verse 31, I left because I was afraid. For I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, this is the second question, do not let him live. Now, he doesn't know it was Rachel. In the presence of our brethren identify what I, have, what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, doesn't find anything. Goes into Leah's tent, doesn't find anything. Into the two maids' tents, Zil, Zilpah and Bil, Bilhah, did not find them there. Went out of Leah's tent and now he enters Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle. And she's presently sitting on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And so he's kind of going through this, seeing things. There's Rachel sitting on this camel, sitting on these idols, these gods. By the way, if you can sit on your god, um, probably not a good god. So Laban comes up, presumably. He's like, I want to look through your camel. But she says to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is with me. And I hope I don't have to explain what that is. So Laban searched, but he did not find the household idols. Verse 36, Then Jacob was angry. So Laban makes this accusation. 
doesn't find anything. And now Jacob's had enough. Like, this is his blow a gasket, steam out of his ears. He'll conclude by dropping the microphone and walking off the stage. This is his moment. So Jacob was angry and he rebuked Laban. And he answered and he said, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you searched all of my things, what part of my household things have you found? Said it here, before the brethren, before your brethren, that they may judge between both of us. These 20 years, bro, I've been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried their young. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn by beast, I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. And the day the drought consumed me, the frost by night, sleep departed from my ears. I've worked hard for you, man. You lost a, a sheep, miscarried, whatever it was, stolen. I comped you. I've served you above and reproach and you've prospered. And this is how you're going to repay my favor. Thus, I have been in your house 20 years. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters, six for your flock. You've changed my wages 10 times. Second time he's mentioned that. Must have really bugged him. He says, unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands. God even rebuked you last night. Jacob gives it to him. So Laban answers and says to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. This flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to the children whom they have bore? Now therefore, come. Let us make a covenant, you and I, let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brother, gather stones. And they took stones, made a heap, and there ate on the heap. And Laban called it, you can figure out how to say that, but Jacob called it Gilead. The whole idea here behind both is this is a heap of witness. So they've packed these stones, this is a representation of this covenant, this peace accord. And Laban, verse 48, said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name is called Gilead, also Mitzpah, which literally means watch. Because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. If you afflict my daughters, if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, this is the heap and here is the pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap to harm me. Then, well, we continue, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father's judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob also offered a sacrifice on the mountain called his brethren to eat bread. They ate bread. They stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandsons and daughters, blessed them. And Laban departed and returned to his place. Chapter 32, verse 1. 
So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanim. Mahanim literally means two camps or double camp. Here Jacob, Laban is now behind him. He's on his way back to the promised land. He's heading back to the house of his father, Isaac. He's crossed the first significant hurdle. He's broken ties with Laban. He's proceeding forward with great wealth. However, Jacob still knows he's now going to have to deal with his brother Esau, who last Jacob had seen, Esau wanted to what? Wanted to kill him. So he's got Laban in his rearview mirror, but he still knows going into the land of promise, Esau, who wants to kill him, is still up ahead. So verse 3, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, Jacob commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkey, flocks, male, female servants, and have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So there's a welcoming commission sent up ahead. Verse 6. Then the messengers quickly returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau. Come to find out, word had already gotten to him, because he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Uh Uh-oh. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he does what Jacob does. He devises a plan. He divides the people that were with him, divides the flocks, the herds, the camels, divides everything into two companies. Reasoning, if Esau comes with one company and attacks it, well, the other company, which is left, will be able to escape. Kind of feel like you got the short end of the straw if you were put in the first company, right? We're bait. Then Jacob prayed. Interesting. He's now praying. He prays after he's come up with a plan. Keep that in mind. Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal with you deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and and the mother and the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well, and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, <laughs> understand what Jacob is doing. Those sound like good words. It's a good prayer. He comes up with a plan, goes to God, and says, Yo, God, I got a plan. I'd like you to bless it. Not exactly the best strategy for prayer, because what it does is it says, You know better than God. 
The better prayer would be for Jacob to come to God and say, I need a plan. You're in control. You're much more knowledgeable and wise than I am. I don't know what I'm doing. What should I do, Lord? I'm freaking out here, man. Instead, he devises a plan, and he's basically asking God to bless his scheme. So, verse 13, Jacob lodged there that night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. So this is what he's going to send as a present. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk, milk camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 foals. This is a present, kind of letting you know what his wealth looks like. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass over before me, put some distance between successive droves. Still scheming. No doubt, Jacob is in an obvious panic. His fear is understandable. Esau, last he checked, wanted him dead. Jacob prays. He asks for God to bless his plan, to intervene, to deliver him and his family. He even, though, makes the appeal on God's promises. He references God's word. And yet, following this prayer, what does Jacob do? Do you see any trust? He sets a plan and then asks God to bless it. That's backwards, but hey, give him credit. At least he comes to the Lord. After coming to the Lord, asking the Lord to bless his plan, does he even trust that God's going to bless his plan? No, because he's now still scheming a new plan. You know, I might have left out a present. I think that'll help. There's no faith. There's no trust. Now he's decided, it, you know, I should probably go ahead and bribe my brother. Well, verse 17 so Jacob commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you, and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? This is what you should say. They are your servant, Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So Jacob commanded the second and the third, and all those who followed the droves, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For Jacob said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Lots of faith, right? So the present went on before him. He himself lodged that night in the camp. Verse 22, And Jacob arose that night, took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven sons, he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. Now, don't, don't forget what this real noble man does. Esau's up ahead. He divides the whole camp to sections. Sends them on. Gets to now, like, the part of the family he really cares about his wives and his kids and whatnot. And what does he do? You guys go over there, and I'll go up ahead. And if you see Esau, treat, you guys run for the hills. No. He sends his wives and children up ahead. 
while he stays back. He is at the end of this long train. He's willing to sacrifice wives and children to save his own hide, thinking, I can find more of the wives, I can make more of the kids, um, I'm going to get out of here. This is his dynamic. And it is quite a place to find Jacob, isn't it? He is afraid. A reckoning with Esau is going to commence. Jacob's past mistakes, his transgressions, the very things he's been running from for all of these years are now about to catch up with him. There's no escaping them. Jacob left the promised land alone. And now he's determined to come back to the land to face Esau alone. Jacob finds himself in this place called Jabbok. And that's not an accident. The word itself literally means emptying. For 20 years, Jacob has tried to be his own man. To his credit, Jacob believed in God's promises. To his credit, he desperately wanted to see God's work accomplished in and through his life, just like God had done with his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. As such, Jacob for 20 years has done what? He's worked and he's schemed and he's connived. He's clawed his way to where he is. Everything Jacob has, he has, yes, because God blessed him, but he's worked for it. And yet, because Jacob has failed to allow God's work to be God's work, accomplish God's way and in God's timing, working instead in his own strength to attain a life only God could give him, in the process, we noted this last Sunday, Jacob has made for himself quite a mess. God's grace was still sufficient, but his life circumstantially was a train wreck because he refused to let God do God's work. At this juncture of Jacob's life, he is at a point of emptying. He's at the end of himself to the point that he has sent everything he's acquired ahead. He's got nothing with him. He is totally and absolutely alone. Jacob, the tank's on E. The lights come on. He's running out of fumes. He's at the end of his rope. He's out of plans, schemes, out of ideas. At this point, there is literally nothing else Jacob can do. And then we're told, look at the text. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, this man touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he continued to wrestle with him. And the man said, let me go for the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Imagine, just don't, don't let these words go in one ear and out the other. Imagine the scene. Like Place yourself here. Jacob is on a crash course with his vindictive brother Esau. He's alone. It's dark. Jacob is desperate, exhausted, 
ready to give up, not to mention afraid. When out of nowhere, out of nowhere, we're told a man attacks him, comes out of the darkness, flying out of the darkness, and a wrestling match between this man and Jacob ensues, and it lasts until daybreak. Jacob and this mystery man go back and forth, exchanging blows. It's life or death. Jacob is freaked out. Now keep in mind, this was not your, your typical Floyd Mayweather fight where you dance around for 12 rounds and avoid getting hit. This was not a Ronda Rousey overhyped 48-second flop. This, my friend, was a battle royale, a true fisticuffs. Diaz and McGregor going five in the octagon. In order to understand what's happening, in order to understand why it's happening, you need to first identify this man. For this man is not just any man, this aggressor. In Hosea, the prophet, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we're told of this story. In Jacob's strength, he wrestled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, capital angel, and prevailed. He wept and sought favor for him. This man, and in your text you will note, that not only do you find man, but then the he referencing them, all in capitalization, indicating the translators viewed this man as another Christophany, another pre-incarnate appearance of the physical nature of God. Jesus, this man, is Jesus wrestling with Jacob. Jesus is the aggressor. Secondly, this Hebrew word we find wrestled, totally unique in the Bible. This is the only place in Scripture you will find this word used. It literally means dust. Like the implications are that this was not a dream. And, and the text wants you to know that. This was not some type of a vision or a hallucination. This wasn't a spiritual wrestling. This was an actual physical altercation that took place between Jesus and Jacob to the point during the brawl, Jesus strikes Jacob's hip, takes it out of socket. You're not getting that in a hallucination or a spiritual wrestling. There is a physical result happening from this wrestling match. They are throwing and landing punches. And this is Jesus Meek and mild, Jesus. Just another example of how, like, we've just twisted the nature of Jesus. We twisted the person. We've created this pansy Christ where Jesus is Fabio without the muscles. He's Swedish, speaks with a British accent. For man shall not live by bread alone. And his robes are perfectly manicured, bleached white. That he was peace, man, peace. Like he was the fifth beetle or something. 
That's not Jesus. On multiple occasions, even in the Gospels, we read of Jesus sitting in the corner of the temple, weaving a whip as he begins to stew, only to then kick butt, not even worry about taking names, throwing over him. He gets violent. With Jacob, he's willing to come down and wrestle with him. Bro, it's time you and I have a throwdown. Enough's enough. And note, Jesus, not Jacob, was the initiator. A man came and wrestled with Jacob. Jacob had no interest in wrestling, but Jesus did. Jesus here, knowing everything that's going on in Jacob's life, It was Jesus who came to him. It was Jesus who went on the offense, who went on the attack. Jesus wrestled with Jacob all night. Wanting what? He wanted something. Something Jacob wasn't willing to give up. He wanted Jacob to call uncle. He wanted Jacob to tap out. On this passage, David Guzik wrote this, quote, God wanted something from Jacob. God wanted all of his proud self-reliance and fleshly scheming, and God came to take it by force if necessary. With this in mind, this statement, look at the text again, this statement, he saw that he did not prevail against him so that he touched the socket of his hip. With all of this in mind, that, that statement carries a very, uh, very much a deeper meaning. It, it carries deeper significance. Jesus wrestled with Jacob all night. And understand this, not because Jesus couldn't have licked him right from the beginning. Like these are not equals throwing down. Jesus could have beaten him immediately, but instead, Jesus willingly allowed the struggle to continue the full duration with intention. Jesus' purpose in wrestling with Jacob was to get Jacob to a point where he would yield and finally surrender. It's evident. At some point during the struggle, and, and our text Uh, And Genesis doesn't imply this, but Hosea does for sure. At some point during this wrestling, at some point during the night, Jacob comes to understand, wait a second, this ain't Harry. This ain't Esau. This isn't one of his assassins. I don't even know who this is. And as it continues, and it continues, at some point the light bulb goes off and Jacob finally understands what's going on. He understands who it now is he's wrestling with. In verse 30, we'll actually see that as he's kind of recounting all of this, he says, I have seen God face to face. At some moment within the struggle, something changed in Jacob. At some point during this wrestling match. Jacob goes from wrestling to clinging, from fighting off to grabbing hold. Notice when Jesus, he finally tells Jacob, he says, let go of me. 
Like Jesus is trying like, let go. Jacob is clinging. He's not wrestling. He's grabbing. He's clinging. He's grasping. <laughs> and look at Jacob's reply. No. He says, I won't let go unless you bless me. Once again, what, what makes this interesting is that Hosea tells us, as Jacob makes this plea, no, I won't let you go until you bless me. He's weeping. Like he's full-blown broken. His soul is pouring out of himself. This phrase, unless you bless me. You know, it reveals so much as to where Jacob is mentally. Up until now, Jacob has worked hard to see the, the promises of God manifest in his life. And yet it seems now Jacob understands something that God wanted him to get all along. And that's that Jacob was nothing apart from God's blessing. He says, unless you bless me, I can't go on. I can't go forward. It indicates these two words, unless you, that Jacob had come to accept the reality that without God's involvement in his life, he was nothing. Verse 27, so he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. As Jacob here is clinging onto Jesus, right? So, so he's weeping. Jesus is like, let go. And Jacob is like, no, I'm not. Not unless you bless me. I can't go on without you. Like there's just this, this, it's pouring out. He's holding on to Jesus, grasping, holding on. And what does Jesus ask? He says, he says, what is your name? Now, why would Jesus ask him his name? At first, you can't help but think the last time Jacob had been asked that very question. Do you remember? 20 years earlier, his father Isaac had asked him, what is your name? And what did Jacob say? He lied. And he said, my name is Esau. In a sense, in asking him this question, Jesus is reminding Jacob that this mess he's in, this circumstance he's in, this situation he's in, you know why, Jacob, you're where you are? Because of you. Because of you. Beyond this, you can also reason that Jesus asked him such a question to force Jacob to admit out loud what his name was. There was an identity in his name, wasn't there? He wanted, Jesus wanted him to admit who he really was. He was Jacob. He was a heel catcher. He was grasping. Jesus wanted him to admit his identity, to concede his nature, to finally come to the point where he was willing to say, I'm the problem. I imagine that in that moment, Jacob let go and he rose to his feet. I'm convinced the light bulb had gone off, the point had been made, the lesson understood. Jacob had come to terms with who he was 
He had acknowledged that he was inadequate. He's broken. He's willing to surrender. He happens to be right where Jesus wants him. And notice what Jesus then does. He says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. First off, in ancient cultures, names were significant. A name spoke of that person. It spoke of of their nature. It spoke of their identity. The act of naming, it signified authority and dominion over that person. This is why God changed Abram's name to Abraham. It's why God changed Sarai's name to Sarah. It explains why God gave Sarah the name Isaac. God named Isaac. (laughs) Big picture? It's why God told Mary to name her son Jesus. It spoke of God's dominion, his authority. When you name someone, when you named a person, you were the authority over that thing. So a name, it signified your nature, who you were. It signified who you were surrendering to, who you were under. This is why God changes his name. Jacob had been a real heel catcher. He had been given that name, why? Because it represented the activities of his flesh. He came out after Esau, holding on to Esau, which is why they were like, that's a heel catcher. And they named him Jacob. It was the activities of himself, the activities of his nature, the activities of his flesh that said, now that Jacob had come to the point of realizing that he was powerless in his flesh, now that he had come to the point of understanding the full radical nature and power of God's grace and God's favor, that he didn't have to work for something that God wanted to give, God now changes his name. You're no longer Jacob, son. You're Israel. Interesting. The Hebrew word Israel, it's a compound word. The verb Sarah means to rule, and El, Israel, means God. It's a verb and a noun. The word Israel literally means God rules. As such, we understand this man, once known as Jacob, a man who had at one point been governed by his flesh, his fallenness. Now, he's Israel. God has given him a new identity through his grace. Well, verse 29, Jacob asks, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And Jesus says, why is it that you ask about my name? And Jesus blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And he crossed over Penel, and the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because Jesus touched it, and the socket of Jacob's hip, and that muscle shrank. This morning, I want to leave you with one thought, with one thing. God. God isn't Oprah. It's the truth. He's not Oprah. And he's not Dr. Phil. Please understand this. God 
is not interested in making you a better you. Instead, God's sole desire is to make you into something brand new, something you aren't. The goal of Christianity isn't the renovation of self, it's regeneration. The purpose isn't life improvements via behavioral modification, but it's new life via an internal transformation that can only happen when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You see, the story of Jacob wrestling with Jesus It's incredibly significant because it illustrates for us the mechanism for how this work of transformation occurs in our lives. Consider for a moment, how did Jacob ultimately become the man that God had called him to be? How did Jacob become Israel? Was it through his efforts, his striving, his scheming, his planning, his work, his ingenuity, his flesh, his natural man? Was it Jacob? No. Jacob became the man God wanted him to be the very moment he reached the end of himself, was willing to admit who he was insufficient. When he stopped wrestling, with God, and instead grabbed hold of Jesus when he surrendered his flesh to the influence of divine grace and allowed God to transform him by imparting a new identity. That is when he became Israel. For so many years, friend, Jacob tried so hard, so very hard, and in one moment, he simply became via work of God. Please note, the key to this life, as it was with Jacob, is to stop wrestling with God and surrender to Jesus. Stop trying to make yourself the person only he can make you. You know what who you are were? Think about it. You were an enemy of God. But today, through Jesus, you're a child of the Most High. You are a whore to this world. Now, you're the bride of Christ. You sowed seeds of wickedness. Now you're an heir of promise. You were ripped off, but now you're eternally blessed. You were once held captive by a sinful world, but now you're a citizen of heaven. You were once lost, but now you're found. Blind, but now you can see. You were lame, friend, but now you can run. Broken, but today you're made whole. You were a blasphemer, but now you're a proclaimer. A rebel, but now a friend. Fallen, but in Jesus. Jesus made righteous. And how did any of those things, how did any of those transformations, how did any of that happen? You doing something? Not at all. All of those things happen for one reason. You didn't work hard to earn them, scheme to procure them, wrestle to attain them. Shoot, you don't even deserve them. 
Instead, you became all of those things the very moment you came to the end of yourself, stopped wrestling with God, and accepted the simple reality that God's grace is enough. Transformation can only come when Jesus gives you a new identity. When you become someone new, it's why, it's why we call it being born again. Friend, unless Jesus, you're damned. Unless grace, you'd remain as you are, a sinner, Jacob. As we close, please don't forget who initiated this. It was Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus came and wrestled with Jacob. Why? Wanted to rain on his parade? Wanted to rob the joy? No. Jesus came and wrestled with him because he loved him and he wanted to transform his life. He saw that he was empty and Jesus wanted to make him whole. This morning, I know it, but there are many of you wrestling with God right now. Even as the words are coming out of my mouth, there is a wrestling happening here. But please know this. You're wrestling to hold on to a life so very inferior to the one he's wanting to provide. And for you Christians, let God do his work in your life. You're a son, a daughter. Do you know what that means? There is no greater status you can ever have. God has put you on par with Jesus. Which is why there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Because you're a son and a daughter because of what Jesus did for you. So quit wrestling and just surrender. So Father, Lord, we just let that settle in.